This is an ABC podcast. Today, we head to Curtis Island on the Great Barrier Reef. Beautiful paradise, mate, and a very well-kept secret. Come on. To its residents, it might be heaven on earth, but it's also home to three liquefied natural gas plants, which export roughly 5% of the world's LNG. And great excitement as buyers snap up cheap land in outback Queensland, with blocks going for as little as 5,500. Sold, look. Now it's getting... <laughs> oh, what I want, it's got a sold <laughs> Great excitement. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country. And now we head to Yugara, a small rural town in New South Wales. Last year, the small inland town was nearly wiped off the map when a wall of water caused by flash flooding hit the community. The catastrophic flood on November 14th came with little warning, taking two people's lives and damaging 80% of the homes. But today there's been some reprieve for the community. Modular homes have begun arriving in Yagara to get people back onto their blocks and into more permanent accommodation. And our reporter who's been covering this quite extensively, Molly Gorman, is there. Now, I'd imagine, Molly, there's great relief for people as most people in town are starting from scratch. What was the mood like today? It's a good step forward, I think, for a lot of people. We spoke with Ruth Nielsen, who's the first person to receive one of these modular pods, and she was really thrilled. She didn't really know how she'd ended up at the top of the list to receive one, but she wasn't complaining. It's been lifted already by a crane to her backyard behind her brick house, which will need to be knocked down. You can see on the sides of the house where it's been blown out by the water, the force of it coming through on that morning. So I think people who are you know, going to be making use of this in particular will be thrilled to see them around. It's something a bit more permanent. I imagine after three months of caravan living, especially for people with families, it's probably taxing. So it's good to see these modular homes, one and two bedroom setups start to arrive and end up in, in the backyard as a step forward to getting people back into their own homes. What is it that people are going to get to live in now? Well, if you've ever seen a cool room, it looks a bit like one of those, but with some windows, a door. And on the inside, one of the ones we were in today, it's a two bedroom setup. It's got lovely wooden panels panelling almost on the inside and two bedrooms, a kitchen, a full bathroom and an air conditioner. So it's almost like an expanded caravan in some ways, a bit more space, a bit more like a house rather than the temporary digs of a caravan, I guess. And the one bedroom unit had a bathroom, it had a sort of open plan living and bedroom space with a kitchen, TV mounted on the wall over the bed. So a few more creature comforts perhaps than what some people have been having. And are they well insulated, Molly? Yes, so like a cool room you'd, you'd expect, I guess. That was sort of what the builder was telling us today. He expects the, the insulation to be quite good, which of course is important in this region. It gets pretty warm in summer, but it also gets very cold in winter. So some of these houses too, I think it's important to note, some of the houses in particular were quite old and um, in some cases perhaps were not as well insulated as perhaps these modular homes will be. So, you know, hopefully it's all around a bit of a step up for most people. Now you mentioned a number of people were camping up until now. 
Can you describe kind of the general living circumstance for, you know, it's 80% of homes that were damaged. How have people been managing? It's a bit of an all over the shop situation. Lots of people staying with friends or family out of town. There are people who are still living in motels around the Central West. And that's true, not just for the flood devastation at Ugaura, but across at Forbes and downstream as well. There's been a lot of people who have it in Ugaura itself, which were brought into caravans after the initial disaster happened in mid-November. You drive through the streets and even now most houses have a caravan parked in the driveway and plugged into water and power. The tricky thing for renters has been what they do because if their houses were condemned, which of course has happened in most cases across the town, they couldn't stay there and if they want to stay on the property and they need to have the landlord support that decision. So a bit of a tricky one, which the New South Wales Reconstruction Authority, which is of course formally known as Resilience New South Wales, said today they are working on sort of negotiating that space for people who are renting, whether that means they end up on some publicly owned land with these modular homes or if they cannot come to an agreement with landlords about hosting them in these temporary accommodation in the meantime. So is that where the modular homes have come from? Molly, the New South Wales Reconstruction Authority. Yeah, so they're being supplied by the state government to these homes and they're coming fully set up, which is, of course, so important because so many of these people were left with nothing more than the clothes that they were wearing when they, you know, in a lot of cases were airlifted out of the town. How long is it going to take to house, like 80% have been in condemned houses, how long is it going to take to actually get everybody back home and, and living comfortably? So I think it's a bit of a tricky question to answer. It's going to be a long process, partly because of the sheer number of people who have been displaced and partly because a lot of people don't have insurance, so don't have the finances to be able to rebuild or don't know how they will find the finances to do so. Uh, However, the builders we were speaking to today told us they expect to be spending about four months with these modular homes going in. So um, in the short term, you know, a few months to get these up and running, but I'd say still a few years from getting the town back to where it was before before the flood. Now you mentioned it's a tricky situation for renters and being such a small town, I'd imagine a lot of people were tossing up whether they were going to stay or not. How many people ended up staying? We've heard sort of anecdotally there are a few people, perhaps a dozen or so, who have left the town and there are a few for sale signs up around. So, you know, it does certainly seem like people have decided to go and not come back. But on the flip side, I know it's a cliche, but it is a tightly knit community and everyone knows everyone. So that feeling of community, I think, is going to bring a lot of people back. On top of that, there's also a lot of young people, a lot of young children, but there's also a lot of older people who have perhaps been in the area a long time. You know, where else do they go? So I think a lot of people will return but it'll be interesting to sort of compare the population in a couple of years time and see if there's a really obvious difference. Molly Gorman thanks very much for bringing us up to date on Australia Wide. No worries. You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Curtis Island in the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area is a major habitat for vulnerable species. The island off the coast of Gladstone in Queensland is also home to three liquefied natural gas plants, which export roughly 5% of the world's LNG. Aaron Semler sat down with a few residents to find out what life is like alongside LNG. Beautiful paradise, mate. And a very well-kept secret. Come on. Phil McKinstry lives on Curtis Island off the coast of Gladstone in central Queensland. He starts each day by walking around the small town of Southend with his best friend, 
a fierce dash hound named Peaches. No biting now, right? Settle down. I've lived here permanently for 25 years. So I've coming, been coming here for about 50 years. About 10 kilometres away in a direct line, three liquefied natural gas plants are in full production. They were built in the early 2010s. And didn't really change the way of life at all here. I've spoken to people in Gladstone and they've said, oh, it's a bit, a bit dangerous for you people on South End with the gas company in your backyard. But I mean, we've got that huge hill there. And if anything did happen to that gas plant, a major explosion, I think it would affect Gladstone more so than it would affect here. Found in the southern part of the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area, the island is a major habitat for critically endangered Capricorn yellow chats and a nesting site for vulnerable flatback turtles. The three facilities on the island are owned by QGC Pty Ltd, Santos GLNG and Australia Pacific LNG. Coal seam gas is pumped through underground pipelines from southern and western Queensland to Curtis Island, where it's condensed into liquid natural gas for international export. The first shipment left the island in 2015, with production increasing ever since. At the height of construction, thousands of jobs were created. We had a few contractors over here that used to work over there, but not, not any great degree and didn't really change the way of life at all here. The Gladstone Conservation Council's Anna Hitchcock says the environmental group was formed in the early 2010s by a group of Curtis Island and Gladstone residents in opposition of the gas plants. Look, I think it was really a very visible industrial encroachment on um, people's way of life because Curtis Island had always been very, very green, you know, covered in vegetation. And so then there was all of a sudden this great scar on the landscape. Uh, the other thing that happened with the first couple of gas plants was great clouds of black smoke in the commissioning of the plants, um, which uh, people were not used to and found quite offensive. A 2011 UNESCO report said the World Heritage Committee's position on oil and gas exploration is that these activities are incompatible with world heritage status. It noted with extreme concern the approval of the LNG facilities on Curtis Island and said it was a clear potential danger to the Great Barrier Reef's outstanding universal value and integrity. Miss Hitchcock says despite the report and subsequent recommendations, the projects went ahead. Now we have great gas plants, you know, and, and light pollution, flaring, black smoke, etc. It just brought home to us the fact that actually, well, the World Heritage um, designation doesn't actually provide any protection. Environment and Heritage Protection disclosure log documents showed an $8,500 penalty infringement notice was issued to QGC for black smoke in 2015 and a $13,000 fine to Santos GLNG in 2019. A Queensland Department of Environment and Science spokesperson said the LNG plants were declared coordinated projects and required environmental impact statements prior to approval. The spokesperson said there are a range of monitoring conditions associated with each of the environmental authorities for the release of contaminants, including air emissions, water, wastewater and noise. The department said it was not aware of any current compliance issues.
Back in the tight-knit community of South End, where about 40 permanent residents live, homeowner Linda Strickland says life with LNG on the island hasn't changed much. It doesn't really have a direct impact. The only thing I could gripe about is you see the glow from the plant at night time. Ms Strickland is one of many multi-generational families to call the island home. The gas plant hasn't been there long enough for us to really notice long-term impact on the environment. And thanks to Aaron Semler and Rachel McGee for that story. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. More than 30 blocks of land in outback Queensland have been snapped up for bargain prices in an auction that attracted interest from across Australia. The vacant lots were put up for sale by the Flinders Shire Council in the state's northwest in a bid to address the region's dire housing shortage. The cheapest land sold under the hammer for just $5,500. Lily Nothling has this story. 1,052 people are watching it. Go to 20. After a nail-biting online auction, 24-year-old Jamie Lee Coward and her younger sister Bridie have just become landowners. Sold. Look. Now's it's get... <laughs> oh, the sisters bought a vacant block each in the outback Queensland town of Hewenden for a low five-figure sum. Pretty excited to get that opportunity since there's not much housing in Hewenden here at all, especially to buy or rent. Um, and then when my sister, she said that she was going to get involved as well, I said, well, yeah, let's try and do it together and see where we can go with it and start building our little future here like our parents did as well. The Flinders Shire Council put 48 vacant blocks up for sale in the towns of Hewenden, Prairie and Torrens Creek. It was a bold plan to address the region's housing shortage. Of the available land, 34 blocks sold at auction yesterday. Prices ranged from $5,500 to $20,000. Real estate agent Brett Garnett says there were 371 registered bidders from across Australia. There is registrations from every state. The first person I've spoken to since the sale closed, he said, well, I'd better get on a plane and come and see what I've purchased. Flinders Shire Mayor Jane McNamara says the result exceeded the council's expectations for the sale. I think the greatest thing now is that a lot more people know where Hewenden is. They know of the opportunities that are in northwest Queensland. I think it's a great testament to people taking an interest in properties west of the Great Dividing Range. The sale of each block includes construction conditions to prevent the land from sitting empty. Mayor Jane McNamara hopes it'll lead to a home building boom, increasing the number of available rentals in the region. That will pique the interest of some tradespeople and I wouldn't be surprised that we may see a few more tradespeople head west, which is really what we're looking to do. But she admits it's not an immediate fix to the outback housing woes especially given material and labour shortages. It's all about availability. You know, we're looking at you know, 12 months for our local people to build anything and also we know that modular homes, you know, there's, there's a lengthy waiting list. That story from Lily Nuffling on that land sale in Hewenden. ABC Australia Wide. I think it's wonderful. I think everyone should come and see it. On ABC Radio. 
It's a common pastime for a lot of knitting and crochet enthusiasts, making items to donate to their local hospital, whether it's for babies in the neonatal unit or for parents that have lost their little ones. For Gidget Berry from Mount Morgan in central Queensland, knitting these blankets is very personal. Our reporter, Katrina Bevan, sat down with Gidget to hear more. But just a warning, this story discusses stillbirths and contains content that some people may find distressing. Gidget Berry knows all too well the absolute devastation of losing a baby. The grief, often staying with parents like her for a lifetime. After going through... The nine months and then walking away with nothing is gut-wrenching. It's like someone ripped your heart out and stomped all over it. It's it's confusing time because, yeah, you're not expecting to bury a baby before yourself. And I didn't have anything in place, you know, like no funeral or anything because I wasn't expecting it. The Mount Morgan mum suffered multiple miscarriages and in the early 2000s lost two babies weeks before their due date, three years apart. But in amongst her insurmountable sorrow, there was one small sliver of comfort, a handmade crochet blanket for her baby that had been donated to the hospital. Or in Gidget's words, a hug and a rug. And I was given a choice of a blanket and it made a big difference that your baby's going out with love like Nana took time out to make a blanket for someone that she didn't know and it, it makes such a big difference seeing little and wrapped up and mm. looking normal for at least five minutes. Seven years ago a conversation with a friend sparked an interesting Gidget who was an avid knitter to start making her own blankets for angel babies to donate to hospitals in central Queensland. It was just through a friend of mine. She was telling me about the loss that she heard about and from the lady in the bed next to her and said that, you know, what a beautiful gesture it was that they offered to her a blanket. And it was like, well, hang on a minute, I can nip. It's time to give back. So I did. According to federal government statistics, in Australia every day, six babies are stillborn, affecting more than 2,000 families every year, while miscarriages can occur in about one in five confirmed pregnancies. For Gidget, channelling the grief of her losses into giving back has helped, and she's one of many, many people across the country and the world who make blankets for hospitals, health and ambulance services. Losing anyone or anything is never easy, so I just, I like to give back. Some knitters and crochet enthusiasts like Gidget make their own arrangements with local hospitals and donate anonymously, while others volunteer for official charities, such as Angel Gowns for Australian Angel Babies. The charity, established in 2014, supplies items for parents who have lost babies aged from 16 weeks to 18 months. President Wendy Jenkins says the packs, which can include gowns made from donated wedding dresses, blankets, booties, beanies or teddies, are sent all over the country to hospitals, funeral homes or directly to parents' houses. I think it gives comfort to the parents knowing that they don't have to stress out about something else, trying to find an outfit 
saw their angel baby to be buried in. During the pandemic, the charity saw a spike in volunteers, with numbers slightly dropping since then to around 250 online and offline members combined. Wendy says the charity isn't accepting any more wedding dress donations at the moment due to a backlog, but they always need more volunteer seamstresses, knitters and crochet enthusiasts. We're all here to help the parents that have lost babies. There's always people around to help parents out when they've lost an angel baby. Wendy Jenkins, president of charity Angel Gowns for Australian Angel Babies, ending that story from Katrina Bevan. And if you or someone you know needs support on infant loss or miscarriage, you can contact Charity Sands on 1300 072 That's 1300 072 or Panda on 1300 726 And there's also a lifeline on 13 11 14. And finally, for a Valentine's Day tale of unconditional love with a difference. Three grandmothers from Devonport in Tasmania have been turning heads with their troop of ten raggedy rescue dogs. They walk around town in three prams. They call themselves Charlie's Angels after their favourite timid little dog and they urge everyone they meet to give a rescue dog a chance. Hello. Hello. There you go, roll the girl. Quick head count here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Should be nine. nine. (laughs) I think we've lost any on the way. There should be nine amazingly well-behaved little doggies here. There's two that feel quite threatened when other dogs come. They're rescue dogs. You don't know the background. I'm Diane Jordan. Gunnar Sputtery. I'm Christina Darkovitz. We've got three prams stacked full of dogs and a few more on the ground. <laughs> well, at the doggy park we have 10, sometimes 11, don't we? Yes. They're all rehomed and very much loved. I walked past you, saw three ladies pushing prams, thinking, oh, isn't that nice? Getting together to take the kids out and a couple of dogs. And then I looked more closely and thought, prams are full of dogs. There's six dogs in the prams. How did this all start happening? Christina and Diane have been friends for years. I met the girls at Latrobe Dog Park about 18 months ago. And then we decided to walk along here. Archie, this little boy, uh, he's got leg trouble. There's some with arthritis, some with heart problems. So they go for a ride in the pram. Charlie, he's on a diet. He was in a wheelchair and I got a phone call. He was originally from a puppy farm. And instead of taking one day for him to sit on my knee, it took four years. And he's still very timid. You can see it in his eyes. Yes. And they were so sad. What a beautiful dog. He is. Charlie's angels. I mean, there were three of them, there's three of you. (laughs) That's what Christina said this morning. That's what Christina said? (laughs) Really? Charlie's angels. (laughs) Christina, how many dogs do you have at home? Six. I had eight. People just ring and say, can you take a dog? And the word no wants to come out, but yes comes out instead. <laughs> Do you remember your first dog? Yes. Sammy, when I was about nine. Sulcateria. It goes back that far? Oh, not with a whole heap of dogs. Mum wouldn't let me. I'd, I'd bring stray animals home, and when I got home from school they were gone. And then I married a man who loves dogs. Question came in on the first date, did it? Just slipped it in. What do you think of dogs? <laughs> <laughs> me love my dog. Love me, love my dog. <laughs> 
How come they are all so beautifully quiet and well-behaved? Little doggies. I would have thought there'd be a couple more of them, you know, experiencing some trouble because of their past. I think it's the love they receive. And surprisingly, they all get on. Once in a while, we get a roast chicken and go back to Christina's Uh place (laughs) and we break it up and they all sit round in a circle and wait their turn. Little Benny here, he came from a town up in North Queensland. He was found wandering the streets at six months old. And he's found his way to Tasmania now after going through four shelters. Christina has to have a kennel licence and so she's got to jump through the hoops but she's willing to do that. I just say to people, don't go and buy a dog for $3,000, go to the pound. Speaking of jumping through hoops, these guys do a little bit of that, don't they? Well, Benny does. <laughs> Latrobe Park, there's an agility course there. He just took it upon himself one day. Walking along here and you might see some grumpy people and suddenly you see the smile on their face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no alpha dog here? Gizmo. No, except um, Gizmo. Little Smiling assassin. The, the little one down the bottom yeah. with the head out the bottom of the prey. Yes. <laughs> that one. He bites. I named him the smiling assassin because he looks so cute and everybody wants to pat him. Josie, her dad died. We knew one another and it was always an understanding I would take his dog if anything happened to him. Then Gussie Boy, his owner's best friend died on the day of the floods in... 2016? Yes, and he was looking for a home. You who to call? Yes. Oh, isn't that lovely? Unconditional love of a dog. Rick Eves with that story from Devonport in Tasmania. And that's Australia-wide for this Valentine's Day. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.